Foster Care Nation. Listen up. May is National Foster Care Month, and this month we're going to bring some special content to you guys. We know how important it is to spread these messages to people. I just want to challenge you guys to step outside of your comfort zone and help the world realize that there's a lot of problems that they can help solve. Just simply, all I'm asking right now today is to share an episode with a friend. So thanks so much for doing your part to help spread the awareness and bring some more people into the fold of helping kids from hard places. You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation. But never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I think now. Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey with Jason and Amanda. And today we have some special guests. Right now we have Sleeping Baby, so hopefully she doesn't make a whole lot of noise on us today um, because I can't cut that out. So you guys are just going to have to listen to her. She decides to be angry. I can't help that. I can't fix it. So that's the story of my life. But we more intentionally brought on John and Shannon Sorensen. How are you doing today, guys? Good. Good. You guys have quite a story, and our story has some crossover pattern, you know, paths in it. You know, we're, we're in a foster and adoptive world, and we've dealt with a lot of the stuff that you guys have been dealing with here lately. So why don't you guys just tell us a little bit about your story and, uh, and how you guys got into this world? Well, uh, John and I, uh, pretty much right off the bat, when we got married, started to uh, struggle trying to get pregnant. And I think it was probably about a year and we decided, um, actually the whole idea of foster care just kind of fell into our lap. And I was at work one day and John happened to be, it was Valentine's day. And he went to the mall to go look at, uh, some gift ideas. And I was at work talking to a coworker and somehow foster care came up. And during that process, Um, she was talking about a specific, um, organization and John happened to be at the mall and they had a display going on that day promoting, um, foster care. And it was the exact same agency. And when we got home, we kind of talked about it and I said, Hey, guess what happened today? And he's like, well, you'll never guess what I saw today. And it was almost like it was just meant to be. And we kind of pursued at that point that, you know, let's, let's look deeper into, you know, foster care and maybe we could become parents like we've always wanted to. And that's kind of how it started. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, I notice whenever those things show up in in multiple places in my life at once that I need to pay attention to that. Sometimes that's like God tapping me on the shoulder. Sometimes it's like getting smacked in the face. You're supposed to be listening to me here. And (laughs) that's exactly what it was. Yes, Absolutely. And every now and then I actually listen. So yeah, it, that's kind of, I think, similar to Amanda and I's um, getting into this whole thing. It's It took a little bit of a slap in the face for me to, to realize, to hear her say it. 
you know, so I'm curious because everybody knows about, you know, foster moms and foster moms, and it's all about the moms, and you almost never hear anything about foster dads. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to talk to John here just for a quick second. Dude, like, like, where were you on all this? Is this something that you've always wanted to do? Was it part of your, your own childhood experience, or, or why was this something that was important to you? Um, it wasn't really anything I'd directly thought about. I, uh, adoption was always kind of a part of my family's history, but it wasn't like foster adoption. And then I think it was what a year or two of us trying to have kids on our own is when I finally kind of, that was always kind of in the back of our heads that we, you know, that was an option, but we wanted to try to pursue having kids of our own. And then that, that day Shannon was talking about on Valentine's Day was actually a day that we were taking a pregnancy test. This was when they had said, you know, our, our option or our possibilities of multiples are very high. And then we went from being on that high level to nothing at all. Um, I just walking past that display is what kind of opened my eyes to the possibilities and, and just having me having a pamphlet in hand and then her, her and I talking and it's the same exact place that she was, had just discovered it's, it was kind of that tap on the shoulder that this is time to look at this. Okay. Yeah. Now, Shannon, were you, were you ever involved in the foster system or, or did adoption really have much to do with your, your childhood? No. Um, I think I grew up with a very, interesting past. And so my parents got a divorce when I was really, really young. And it was always that back and forth between parents. One parent would get sick of me. So we would shove me off to another. And so I kind of felt like I knew a little bit about what these kids would be going through because I've been shuffled from so many different places. Um, grandparents wanting to try to raise me. Um, I did actually live with a teacher in high school once because my mom and I just did not get along. So I kind of, I kind of felt like I was in that world, even though I wasn't really in that world. Um, after, you know, just trying to get pregnant for so long and all of the struggles that we were already trying to go through at that point, um, I just wanted to do anything that I could to be a parent. And I thought, well, foster care is the easiest way. Let's go with that. Um, yeah. It's not though. <laughs> Definitely not easy. You know? it's not. <laughs> and let me tell you, you know, more than a half dozen kids later, there are a few days where you're like, could I not be a parent for like 12 hours? How about, how about four, four hours? That would be pretty <clears throat> awesome. Yep. No, <laughs> I have to be careful. If I complain too much, she's going to smack me because she's home with a little one, at least one all day, every day. And I go to work. So, you know, I have a little bit of a break in there, but not a lot, not a lot. You know, but okay. So, John, you mentioned that you guys had a pretty high chance of of multiples. I, that sounds like IVF to me. Although I don't really, I'm not an expert. So, yeah, we did. Uh, we did IUIs. I, yeah, IUIs, artificial inseminations. Yeah. Uh, we did f three, three or four uh, rounds four of that. Rounds, I think, and it was an absolute bust each time. Yeah, very devastating. Um, then we did get pregnant twice, lost both. Um, and, you know, they hype you up and say, oh, my gosh, you know, you're going to you've got all of these follicles. They're going to turn into, you know, babies. And 
then we start thinking, oh my God, this is happening. And then when you, you know, check that test and it's no, it's like you're devastated all over again. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it was very heartbreaking. So we, you know, thought by doing foster care, it would be a for sure thing. You know, you're, you're going to get what you want. And, you know, the adoption part of it, you know, we, we even went to another place where it was uh, adopting babies from couples, but they were very strict on if you were still trying to have a child of your own, then you could not participate in this program. So we were like, okay, well, we're not going to stop trying, you know, eventually we would love to be able to have one of our own as well as giving home to, you know, another child or two. So um, we quickly kind of got out of that program and slid into the one that we eventually, you know, went through the classes and became foster parents. Okay. Well, Shannon, I'm very familiar with the maternal instinct. My wife informed me once many, many years ago that if she could, we were going to have a dozen kids and <laughs> I didn't take her as seriously as she meant it. Um, apparently she's still on a journey, so I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> We're currently at eight. We're getting close. We're getting there. We're getting there. (laughs) But we're also getting old, too. Yeah. Yeah. The doctors (laughs) are starting to say things to me that make me go, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to survive long enough to get to a dozen. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, John, I'm curious, you know, the the paternal instinct, that was something that was never really incredibly strong in me, I guess. I I grew up just like, are you going to have kids? Shoot, I don't know. I I mean, maybe. I I hadn't had zero plans for that kind of stuff in my world. Um, you know, and I was just always take life as it comes. And then one day I ended up, um, I ended up with this gal who already had one little boy and, and I was dad and, and it, it went from there and it escalated pretty stinking quick. I'm just going to say yeah, <laughs> in about a year, I think that we actually had three kids we were raising at that point. So for me, there was no like need to be a father was, was that part of your, your personal journey or, or were you kind of like me? And one of those ones is just kind of letting life happen. I think I always had kind of a rough idea. I think I, my, you know, plan, I guess was, you know, I'll, I'll look at having, I'll, I'll start having kids when I'm around 30 and never really, you know, never really thought it was going to be a, an issue or anything like that. It was always just kind of something that was, you just pictured it being something that was going to happen when you wanted it to happen. Um, and then I guess when we, kind of started on our, on our struggles with, uh, fertility. It was, it was like, the more you're at it, the harder, the more driven you are for it. I think as we started that journey is when it really started, uh, was a focal point. Okay. Yeah. Eight, eight, eight long years. <laughs> eight years is what is, it was what your fertility journey was. Yep. Yep. Wow. That's a long time. Yes. A lot of ups and downs and are we going to make it or are we not going to make it? You know, just all, all sorts of emotions, which is, I think, you know, why foster care, you know, was going to be in our minds much easier because, you know, we didn't have to worry about getting pregnant. We didn't have to worry about going through the whole birth situation and this and that, but, um, it's just as, it's just as tough. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. From, from so the very long, beginning to the end. How long have you guys been foster parents? We, uh, 2008. Uh, we got the boys in 2008. We started, two, oh, yeah, 2008. We had the boys in our home for about two years before the adoption was finally yeah. finalized. About a two-year fight slash struggle with the with the system. Yeah. And then we'd had another little boy that we had taken care of for about eight or nine months. About 10 months. Yeah. Um, and then, um, that was it. We haven't, we did, we did emergency placements yeah. before we, we got into a foster adopt situation. We did a few of those yeah. middle of the night calls. And I think the one time we had a family of five or six kids, siblings, that got taken out of the home and that was tough because that's a 20, you know, 24 hour max situation for emergency placement. But that that's a heck of an evening to, to have five kids dropped in your doorstep though, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I think it was like midnight too. And all they came was with a trash bag full of minimal clothes. Yeah. And, and I think there was toys, toys, maybe was there an Xbox or something in there. Yeah. I was very surprised out of all the things that they chose or let the kids get, like they made sure they had the Xbox and there was no toothbrush, there was no tooth. There was like none of that stuff, and we couldn't go out and get anything because they showed up at midnight. Um, and I remember John sleeping in the living room with them because we didn't want him to be alone. And I think one of them didn't want to be alone. Mm-hmm. And well, so I think it was the youngest one. Yeah, yeah. slept with. So we slept, we slept out in the living room, put an air mattress up, and we're like, "Okay, we're not prepared for this, but we're going to make this work." <laughs> <laughs> we did. Like how it goes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's kind of how this this whole journey tends to be, be structured is like we're, we don't know what we're going to face. You know, we're, we know we're going to have some battles here. We know that much. We know we're going to have some struggles trying to fight through some stuff, but we don't know what it is. We're just we're just signing up to to handle somebody else's emergency. Right. Yep. And so now did you guys are were you ever just straight traditional foster parents or have you always been part of the foster to adopt you know route? Foster to adopt. Well, we had, well, I guess, I guess the, the second little kiddo, he was just strictly regular foster care. He was, you know, the whole idea was to reunify him with mom or another family, which, um, that was the first time that we realized that we're going to have to figure out how to let those feelings of loving this kiddo go. And let him go somewhere else. And that was not at all something we were prepared for. We, yeah. we thought we were going into it. You, you think, well, we know, we know up front, this isn't going to be an adoption situation. And, but you don't yeah, expect the, it was, it was heart wrenching seeing him go. Yeah. You don't expect the, the bond that you end up getting with, with them. And then 10 months later, you're like, Holy cow, you're not waking up in your crib every morning. Like you used to. And, you know, your cute curly hair isn't greeting me in the morning when it's all crazy and you got to figure out what to do with it. And um, I think that was a huge eye opener for us was like, man, I don't know if I can emotionally handle letting them go back. Um, We can't take them all. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's really hard to explain to people how you can grieve a child that's still here. Mm -hmm. Not many people can, can do that. It's, it's definitely been a challenge for us. Some, some more than others, you know, there were 
you know, one little guy, when he left, we just, we had to, we took all the kids and we just left for a weekend because we just couldn't handle going back home and seeing all of his things that, you know, they didn't want us to send with him and, and all right. that. It, it's hard. Very much. Baby, baby Carl is now tattooed on my chest over here. The one she's yeah. talking about. There's a couple of the kids over here. Yeah, it's, um, you, you guess we all grieve in our own special way, but you know, it's, it's really, it's been difficult to figure out how to do that sometimes. And like Amanda mentioned, there's a couple kids that when they left, we kind of like, wow, <laughs> that was a challenge. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to some peace for a minute, you know? Um, you know, we, we've had a couple of those kids. We, we had one particular kid who was a teenager and the only teenager we've ever taken in. And, um, and that particular one, it, man, it, he had to leave our house for his own safety because my teenage boys and he were, were about to find, um, figure out how to build a ring and go all UFC in the, in the middle of the living room. And so, oh, yeah. <laughs> and they weren't going to follow any of the UFC rules. I think eye gouging and all that was going to be legal. So. Yeah, yeah. It was a safety sort of thing, but, but yeah, that's nobody expects that they're, um, that they're going to be as affected sometimes by certain kids as you are. And then that's the thing is some of them were really hard to let go. Some of them, ah, they went, they went to, to a good placement and, I was happy to see him get to where they needed to be. And like I said, a couple times you're like, whew, that was challenging. I'm glad that's over now, you know, but you do the best you can as, as you go through this. So, so what does your family look like now? How, how many kids do you have in your house? We have Hector and Luis, which are our adopted boys. And then we have Gabriel who is our biological. So Gabriel's seven, Gabriel's seven, Hector's 14 and Luis is 15. Yeah. Ah, so and they came right smack dab in the teens. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Oh, so difficult some days. So Shannon, difficult. I understand that sound you just made. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> it's not a word. I don't think you can spell it, no. but I understand that sound very well. It's And you know, I, I I guess I forgot. We did um We did have a girl. We did have a teenage girl. We did respite for two teenage girls one time and there was something about the one girl that was just like she just resonated with us and the boys were little and she, she was aging out. Yeah, She aged out of the system. So it wasn't technically a foster placement, but we, we wanted her, we took her in cause she had aged out. And I, I think Shannon and I both felt, you know, they, she was not prepared to go out on her own and we kind of took her in and that ended up being a kind of a challenging yeah. Ending with, with that situation. So that's but, one, like you were saying, <laughs> I'm glad to <laughs> maybe see you go out in the real world and see if you can figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, teenagers have their own special breed of difficulty. And mm -hmm. I, I think, I think we're all wired for something. Um, you give me an addicted newborn. We're good. Get out of my way. Yeah. And uh, you know, some people, we, we have some friends of ours in, in our County here who are, like they take in teens intentionally. And I'm like, wait, on purpose? Like that's what you do for it. She looks at me one day and she's like, you know, I'm amazed by, by people like you and Amanda who can handle these little ones like this. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're so much easier, but she's wired for teens and we're wired for little ones. So, right. yeah. you know, now I always have to ask people, um, is, is this something that comes out of, out of a, a spiritual or religious discipline that, that brought you into this as well? Or is, is that, did that ever play a part in this? 
No, but we did. I mean, I did have an actual experience while we were um, going through our classes. Um, and I think it might've been towards the end of it. I was really kind of struggling if, if, if this is the right thing, you know, are we, are we in the right place? What if we're not going to be good parents? And I was sitting on the steps and all of a sudden I just heard this voice as loud as can be that basically said, um, it's okay. I, you, I got you you're going to have that baby. You're going to have that kid. This is all where you're supposed to be. And I was like, what in the world? I was like, kind of look around like, did anybody else hear that? And I'm standing, I'm sitting there alone. And I remember telling John, and I was like, well, we're definitely where we're, we're supposed to be at. Um, and it was a couple of months later is when we um, got in touch for the first time with the boys, but it was, it definitely was not a spiritual. My parents, his parents aren't religious at all. My parents or my mom and the rest of my family are. Uh, I think there's, a, there's not, a lot of signs along the way yeah, that, that definitely. When you look back now, for sure. There's a lot of things that just the way everything fell into place, just it was like it was orchestrated for us. So I think there's a lot of the, the spiritual draw for me, I guess, that everything's fallen into place for a reason. Well, Shannon, just in case you think you might've been crazy for a minute, you're not the first person who I've heard say something very similar to that. Um, I, I don't know if, you know, if God just has his way of, of talking to, to us in the right moment sometimes. And, uh, some, some people, more than one person has experienced that, um, in, a, in the conversations we've had. So I, I always find that just so interesting that like, that's a part of the journey and, and none of us can explain it. Yeah. And we just, we just keep moving forward, you know, and, and Amanda and I come from a similarly, um, divergent background. You know, I, I came from, from an experience that had a, um, a lot of religiosity in, in my upbringing and Amanda's family, they were, they were, um, I guess what you call the CEO Christians, you know, Christ, Christmas and Easter only. And <laughs> that's only if they happen to be with great grandma and then they would go to church on those days. Um, but yeah, so we come from a, a totally different background as well. And it's, it's led to, to interesting places along our journey. Um, but I wanted to talk about um, one of the things I want to talk about. You guys mentioned that before we started that you guys have a, a nonprofit called Gabe's Giving Tree and at gabesgivingtree.org. And, uh, you know, it's you said it was just in its beginning phase. Y'all are in the fundraising part of it right now, trying to trying to figure out what this journey looks like. And trust me, I'm all, all too familiar with with being in that unknown part of, of these journeys that we're in. And we're just moving in the direction we think we should move. So, you know, kudos to you guys for trying to create something and trying to move forward. Um, you know, if anybody's interested, you can find that on Facebook or it gave gabesgivingtree.org. We were talking earlier. That's just in this beginning phase, right? The website's still being produced um, right now. So it's April of 22 as we record this. So as we move forward, that will all certainly change and, and be different, become more filled out. But um, they, they can contact you guys on about that on through the Facebook page, I'm sure, right? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what what is Gabe's Giving Tree? Our, our plan is to put boxes in place for our boxes together for kids that are going through cancer treatments. Um, we we're about a 10 month treatment journey with our son. And there's just a lot of things that, you know, he got flooded with toys and 
trinkets and, and stuff, but there are so many things that brought comfort to him that we found uh, just through other parents and stuff. Like uh, Gabriel had a reaction with radiation treatment. He had really bad eczema, but we found a, a special line of lotion and stuff that really helped with that. Um, that's something we're going to put in there. And then just some little comfort toys and uh, like with, meditation type things. Like that was something that was very near and dear to Gabriel and I, um, we ended up uh, finding a gal in Memphis at St. Jude who does Reiki, never done anything like that before. And I thought I'm going to try whatever I can to make him feel better, to maybe make me feel better. And we fell in love with that whole atmosphere. And that is something that we carry out today. So part of that box, we're also going to put in a, uh, um, a crystal, like a, a clear quartz crystal in there and put a little note in there um, telling you exactly what it is. If you're, if you're someone who is not religious, but wants to have a, a different way to make you, um, I guess, just feel better and, and all that, you can kind of turn to this and we'll, we can, you know, share a little bit with how that works. Um, some essential oils, I think uh, peppermint and lavender is what we're going to put in there. A lot of times these kiddos get super sick, they're very nauseous with certain smells and peppermint was amazing for Gabe and just the lavender itself is just more relaxing. And um, if he had it his way, he would just fill a box with, you name it, everything that, that made him comfortable. I'm like, I don't think we have a big enough box uh, or the funds to put every single thing in there that, that he wanted and needed. A lot of things that, you know, just keep you focused on an object versus, fo you know, focusing on getting poked by the needle and you know, all those different things. So it's, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's, I guess it's a wellness box. So anything that we can think of that is going to make the hospital stay a little bit more welcoming. Um, there's going to be a little, uh, like if you remember like the Cincy buddies where they put like a, there's like a little pouch in the back where you can put a scent in there. So I actually have some amazing um, clients of mine who are Cincy reps and they're going to donate a lot of those Cincy buddies. And we're going to put those in there and we'll have the peppermint and the lavender smell. So if kids want to take them out, they can take them out. If not, you just have a nice little, a little stuffed animal to kind of cozy up with when you're getting your treatment and just, you know, go around with you in the hospital as you're in your little wagons and, and things like that. So um, we'll probably change it up and add things or take away things depending on what people like or don't like. So um, yeah, so there's just a little bit of something we're going to put in there. That's great. That's great. Well, full, full disclosure here. I met John through that podcast group that, uh, that I talk about all the time on here that I'm a part of that dad's group, the, the dad edge Alliance. That's where I met John. And, um, you know, we've, we've probably both seen each other a couple hundred thousand times on between the Facebook groups and, and the calls that we do and all that stuff. Um, but we, we had recently connected because uh, I saw that John was going through something and I was like, Oh crap. Like he's, I, I see things that remind me of our journey and I know what it looks like when a parent is going through, um, the difficulties of children's hospital or St. Jude. I'm not certain exactly which hospital. I can't remember which one it was that you guys were, were dealing so much with, but it was a pretty clear indication to me. Like this is a place I could talk to a guy who's 
who's in the middle of some hard stuff. You know, you got you obviously have a kid who's who's going through something big here, and um, and so Gabe's journey. Let's talk about that just a little bit for a second. What's that been? Um, well, it it all started in January of twenty one. He ended up uh, he fell in gym class on a scooter took a pretty good hit to the head and uh, he just kind of complained of a headache the next day. And he, we think that's maybe what accelerated the the swelling in his, in his head. And it had caused his, one of his eyes to start to kind of cant in. And we initially thought it was just kind of a muscular development issue and made an appointment with the ophthalmologist. And then that turned into a, uh, within two hours, we're at the ER get an MRI and found out that he had uh, some issues with the optic nerves, a lot of swelling and a lot of pressure in the brain. And then two days later, we, he was medically flown <clears throat> to St. Jude in Memphis and uh, started the evaluation there on their end and um, just kind of assess the situation. It was a very rare tumor. I think they said there's only been about 12 or 13 cases like his. So, um, Shannon's, uh, Shannon's cousin is a doctor at St. Jude. So she was the one, cause we were just, just devastated. We didn't, you know, we were in shock and she's the one that spearheaded the whole thing with getting, getting him there, getting the re- referral and stuff from the doctors and, and getting us taken care of there. And um, it was just a whirlwind after that. We did two months worth of surgeries and treatments and then got a, about a four week break and then came back and then they did an MRI to see how the initial treatments went. He did a kind of an experimental treatment where they did chemo in the morning that was supposed to help uh, make the two, make the cancer cells more receptive to the radiation, and uh, turns out that that was like a picture perfect scenario. There, it had shrunk to where in, instead of the blood vessel going through the tumor, it was it was shrunk enough to where it was just over the top of the tumor. So it was they were able to remove about ninety eight percent of it. Um, and then he did about four. He did four more rounds of, it was a 28 day treatment cycle with three different types. I think it was three different types of chemo, three days, three day break, and then another treat, another chemo treatment. And then it was a three week uh, break just for his system to go through and, and kind of recover for the next round. Everybody knows, everybody's seen the commercials for St. Jude. So when you hear the name, you know what that is, right? And the moment of, of finding out your kid's getting onto a helicopter to go to St. Jude's, that had to be horrible. <laughs> yeah, it was it was double hard for me because, because of COVID. Uh, it was just Gabriel and Shannon that could go. So I had to, all my sister-in-law ended up driving me because I wasn't, I wasn't in any shape to drive. So while they were in the air, <clears throat> I was... I was driving on the way there to meet them. So yeah, it was, it was hard. Yeah. We had to, we had to say goodbye to the boys in the lobby of the hospital because they wouldn't let them come up to his room or anything. And so that was difficult because, you know, Gabe, I don't think really understood what was going on, but the other two knew that, you know, 
something's not right, but we're not sure, you know, what the extent of it was and to have to say goodbye and not know when we were going to see them again was really, really hard. And our boys, um, they didn't, they didn't take it very good at all. And I think that's where, um, we started noticing a lot of issues. Um, once that happened, um, Gabe and I flew there and then we got lucky and my mom surprised and brought the boys up. Um, I don't know, it's like maybe two weeks. So we were at St. Jude for maybe two weeks. We hadn't even really started any treatments yet. So we thought that was a good time for, for them to come up and, and be able to see Gabe before everything really started happening. Um, and then they didn't see him again until the middle of March. So January to March, they didn't have each other and they've been each other's lives since day one um, of Gabriel being born. So that was, that was very difficult to watch. Very. Wow. Yeah. Those, those are the hardest moments in life. You know, um, how far are you guys away from St. Jude? You know, was that a, a long 11 hours, 11 hour drive. Okay. So we fly every time we go back. That that's gotta be one heck of a long drive, John. If if you're anything like me, um, I know you said you had somebody driving you. If it had been me, it would have probably been about a six hour drive, but and 17 tickets, but you know, six hour drive. I could, I yeah. could pull it off. That's why it was best. I, I had somebody drive me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's hard stuff, man. You know, in the midst of all that, you know, because what you told us so far, you know, with the infertility journey, number one, like that, that's almost a decade's worth of a fight there. Yeah. And then to have this dropped on you, I mean, I guess God was testing us. We kept feeling like, what is, what is, what, what purpose are we here for? And, what did we do to deserve all of these things? It was just like, you know, pouring down. I know you said the other boys didn't handle it very well. What, what do you mean by that? What did that look like? Luis's our oldest, him and Gabriel were always very close. They had a, they had a very tight bond. Um, I think it was just the sudden, you know, one minute we're just going to go get his eyes checked and the next we're planning to be gone for we don't know how long and uh and just the un just the uncertainty you know they had shannon and i were both there 11 hours away and and there's they're bouncing back and be, back between grandmas and aunt and uncles and uh, yeah the, i think their just, world got changed yeah. and turned upside down just like gabriel's did theirs did in a whole another way you know, they're no longer in the comfort of their own home. They have a brother whose outcome's uncertain. Yeah. The first six weeks, they stayed at my mom's in Kansas City. So they had to do online learning. And that was very difficult because they were away from their friends. All of the things that could have given them a little bit of normalcy to take their minds off of stuff, they couldn't do that. You know, and they had no outlet except for, you know, grandma, which, you know, at that point, they didn't want to open up. They didn't want to talk about anything. They just wanted to shove their feelings down, and and that's it. Shut down. Sounds like most guys. That's what we do, yeah. right? Because we're smart. <laughs> <laughs> John, we can we can delude ourselves here. <laughs> Our wives know better, but <laughs> yeah, that that's a tough time. Now, you guys just recently came. Um, came back with some some better news out of this, right? 
Yes. Uh, second week of March, he, we have to go back every three months to St. Jude for follow-up scans for the first two years. And then it goes to six months up to five years. And we just got back uh, beginning of March with the second, second set of clean follow-up scans. So everything looks good. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. That's that's awesome. He's our miracle baby. All, I mean, just surviving like infertility and miscarriages to our rainbow baby to now our cancer free baby. It's, you know, it's yeah. Couldn't ask for a better outcome at this point. So we just pray that it, that it continues to stay that way. You know, every time we get something thrown at us, some new challenge that was some new fire that we have to walk through and, and, uh, I'm always, you know, I find out later, there's always a reason I went through something. And, you know, in retrospect, I tend to understand it, but only in retrospect, because I needed to learn something for this next challenge coming up. And sometimes I think, God, <laughs> I don't know what you're preparing me for, but I don't like it. <laughs> it, it looks awful terrifying. Yeah, I think I think in that, like, that's perfect, because cancer taught us a lot about what we were lacking um, in, individually as a couple and as a family. And it really put things in perspective. Um, what you thought mattered didn't mean crap. You know, um, all those things that you just didn't even, you know, that you thought were a big deal. Um, they're not. And you have to really prioritize things, family time more and put your phones down and you know, try and get back to what really matters because you, you have no idea when it's, when it's too late. And it, it definitely changed how we were going to come back and raise our family. Yeah. I mean, you just, until you're there, you don't really know. I mean, how has it affected your guys's relationship, your marriage? Ooh, um, for me, it was very, I leaned on him more than I ever did. When Gabe first got diagnosed, um, the day that he was supposed to, the day before he was supposed to get his biopsy, um, I went to go actually visit my cousin and my sister. So I took the car that they drove up with and I drove to my cousin's house. And as soon as I got there, um, all of a sudden I started feeling kind of crappy. I'm like, what is going on? And it's like, the more we were talking about what was happening, the more my body was not reacting very well. It was responding very like crazy. And my cousin's like, Oh, you're probably just hungry here. Eat some grapes. And I said, I don't feel good. Like something's not right. And with her being a doctor, I said, do you have a blood pressure cuff? I really would like to see where my blood pressure is right now. And it was not good. So I laid down for a little bit, long story short, eventually I felt good enough to try and go back to the hospital and they drove me back. And when I got there, I still didn't feel good. And they said, well, with this being a children's hospital, you know, we can take you downstairs and look at you, but if anything's wrong, we can't treat you here. We'll have to transport you to an adult hospital. I get down there and my blood pressure was 240 over 139. And they were looking like, Oh my God, what are we supposed to do here? And I just remember looking at her and I said, don't let me die. I said, I, I have a son that I'm here to take care of and I can't be the focus here. 
And so it was probably six hours. I was alone downstairs in the ER and I eventually had to be transported to an adult hospital. And John came and picked me up at 5 a.m. and Gabe's surgery was at 7.30. I was exhausted. Um, He was exhausted, but he put that partner hat on and he just like did what he could to make sure that I was okay. And throughout the hospital stays, you know, I would start going to the hospital with Gabe and his appointments, but I still didn't feel right. And I was like, man, I don't, what is going on here? And they soon realized that I had suffered from anxiety and panic attacks. And when we lived at the Ronald McDonald house at the time, um, I stopped eating. I stopped pretty much sleeping and I lost what 20 pounds and he was my rock. Um, John, we would switch off and on. And one day I'd go with Gabe to his appointments because of COVID only one parent was allowed to go to the appointments at once. And so we'd have to switch off and on and I couldn't do it anymore. The thought of walking into that hospital would send me into a tailspin and it was probably until we got back, what was his last radiation treatment? I said, I am bound and determined to go. Um, and I made it and Gabe held my hand that day. I'll never forget. He's like, you can do this, mommy. We got this together. And he held my hand and I was like, okay, I'm doing it for you. And it, to me, it was a true test of what a, a marriage was all about because it could have tore us into a million different pieces, which it already was but he understood what I was going through when he laid there with me. He comforted me. He supported me in every way I can, even though he was breaking down into a million pieces inside as well, but he couldn't show it. And I felt guilty. I felt really bad for a really long time because he wasn't able to unleash his feelings, his emotions because of, of what it was doing to me. Um, I think now, even after the fact, we are stronger than we've ever been. We've gone through so much from infertility to foster care, to adoption, to a biological, to cancer, and we're still here. And, you know, a lot of people would have been divorced, you know, gave up on the situation. And for us, it drew us closer together. At least that's how I feel. Maybe you don't. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely, it's definitely made us stronger. I think we, we took, we took the perspective of we've got to take a bad situation and learn from it and evolve. And I think we've definitely evolved into a stronger, stronger couple. Yeah. I mean, we've had our challenges, no doubt. Um, but we always tell each other that we couldn't imagine going on this journey with anybody else. Like God handpicked you and me for a reason, just like we've always said that with our boys, they, even though they're not biologically ours, they were handpicked just for us because one is just like me and the other was just like him. <laughs> Which is not always good. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about that in our own situation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, John, I got to ask because, you know, when we walk through our journey with our daughter and, and all the time in children's hospital and, and I kind of had that, the, the job of that role as well. Um, I used, you know, one of the, the highly technically advanced techniques of dealing with, with those emotions called drinking whiskey. And, um, <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that, that, that the warning label on there is not strong enough. That, that was a bad plan. 
and it took me a while to, to figure out how not to do that anymore and and to, to walk through through those hard times with without that kind of a crutch how did you how did you get through that and and be able to be there for Shannon that way it was it was tough there was uh, I guess as as the dad and husband I just you know I prioritized uh, myself last and made sure they got through everything and the the times at the end of the night where they're both sleeping that was that was when I would try to unwind and have some time to myself but that's I was coasting on two three hours of sleep throughout that whole time and uh, you didn't drink well I did did, not in the beginning because I wasn't drinking or anything like that but then we eventually kind of felt like you know what I'm feeling better Maybe we should go get that first beer and try it and see what we think. And yeah, and it started out where it was just a a way to relax and unwind. I think when we got some, I, when we had some time to breathe with the situation and found out where things were actually at, um, it started off where we'd kind of re- relax and unwind. And then I came back to Omaha to be with the boys and and work for a little bit. And I found myself kind of slipping into that where get a six pack of beer to relax. And then, well, that six pack's gone already. I, you know, go and get another six pack. And I kind of realized I was starting to, starting to have a bit of a problem with that too. It never got bad to where it really became an issue, but it began, it began to be a, a crutch that I didn't want to lean on anymore. Well, I'm glad to hear, you know, that that wasn't a lifestyle. I, I was, I was a high achiever. Um, I was chasing a bottle of whiskey every night. And by that, I mean, you know, that 750 milliliter glass, that was my glass every night. And I did that for a while and man, it, it was hard for me to, to walk through that. It was even harder to decide, you know, when it was time to, to give it up. And, you know, it, it's been several years since I had a drink because it was an issue for me. And today, Today, because of that journey, I still don't drink. I mean, I, I'm certain I probably could have a drink here or there, and I don't. I'm not mad at anybody who does. I don't think there's necessarily anything inherently wrong with it, but it's just a tie for me to a really hard place. So, so I chose to stay out of it, you know. But mm-hmm. kudos to you for for walking that journey and still being there for your wife. So, what does your family look like now? You guys have got, you know, three kids. You know, you managed to walk through this fire, which was one heck of a fire. It sounds like to get through. You know, you're getting good news from the doctors. What, what does your family look like today? Chaos. <laughs> it's utter, yeah, <laughs> utter chaos now. Um, like Shannon had said, we started noticing some issues with our older boys when when we had to go. And we, we tried our damnedest to, you know, I kind of laid everything out and told them how how hard it is for for us because no matter where I'm at, Shannon, Shannon was there at, at St. Jude the whole time. And I was trying to come back and forth to be with the boys as I could. And I was like, it's, it doesn't matter where I'm at right now. It's, it's going to suck. You know, if I'm here with you guys, I'm, I'm glad that I'm here to spend time with you, but I've got Gabe back there with mom and, you know, I can't be there with him to, to see how things are going. And when I'm there with him, I've got you two boys that are, 
you know, basically on your own in a strange situation. And, um, we, we started seeing some behavioral, some behavioral problems. Well, the, the aunt and uncle did when, when they were there with them and, uh, our oldest one started, he got caught vaping and then our other, other boy ended up swiping the confiscated vape pin to his school and he got caught, he got suspended and, um, they actually started, started cutting themselves a little bit. That didn't go, I think that got caught fairly early on. It didn't escalate into anything real bad, but, um, so I, I think that was kind of their, their way to release the pain, I think, is they would, they would kind of cut around on themselves and it was, it got to be, it got to be really nerve wracking because when we were, you know, when we were both in Memphis, we can't, you can't parent by talking on the phone. And I think that's, that was a really hard thing is it seems like the whole situation with Gabriel couldn't have been avoided. We both had to be there. It was a life or death situation, but it seems like we've, we kind of failed as parents for them because of where we had to be. And it's been a, it's been a course we have not been able to correct yet. Yeah. I mean, a quick background on the boys They're they're We, we started fostering them when they were almost 10 months and almost two, they're 14 months apart. And they have a younger brother who is actually adopted by another family. And um, they were, their mother was extremely young. She was 14 when she got pregnant with Luis and she now has three other kids of her own and bio dad has lost count. I don't know, four or five other kids. And, uh, the boys, um, their background, lots of drugs. So, you know, meth was a huge issue with them. And, um, I think we're, you know, a lot of signs you could see in the beginning, like Hector was very, you know, he'd want to hit his head up against the wall. He was just always just very, just very like needy. They both had lots of uh, attachment and trauma issues growing up. Um, now that they're, you know, 14 and 15, the hardest part is just keeping them from, you know, breaking that cycle of ending up where their parents were behind bars and, and gangs and you name it. And, um, Luis, I think right now is on his third suspension. Yeah. And it's been tough. It's like trying to reach him is it's like no one's home. He's just, he's checked out. Yeah. Well, unfortunately I'm fairly well familiar with most of those stories. You know, we've, we've had teenage kids and, um, you know, kids from the foster system who were walking through that. And first off, I want you to um, do me a favor and never again mention to me that a 14 year old girl can get pregnant because my daughter's 14 and I don't even want to think. about that <laughs> <struggle>. <laughs> I'm pretty lucky with her. She's a really good kid. I don't think I'm going to have those good. struggles in life. Um, you know, but her older biological brother is, he's, he's had a lot of his own struggles through this. And it's it, just like you mentioned, it's like you can talk to your blue in the face, but, but there's nobody home to hear, you know, it's, yeah. and I know biologically speaking, 
you know that whole adolescence period where where there's a testosterone wash it goes over i believe it's the right half of the brain and causes brain damage and makes me understand why teenage boys are so ridiculously stupid sometimes um because <laughs> i survived that too I, I went through that period right but but then when you take a kid who's who's had the trauma and the attachment issues that that come in in life in, in a lot of those lives that these kids didn't really ask for and put that on top of it man we we have like a cesspool of all the ingredients for for big problems moving forward in life and yeah. it's yeah have you guys um do, do you guys have any therapist or anything like that involved you know what what have you work, helped done to help them work through that stuff we've been through a crap ton of therapists yeah, we've been through a few therapists like that was another thing that just contributed to this whole situation of chaos is he he had about four or five sessions in with a, a a new therapist and she was younger and i think they seemed to connect pretty good his first female therapist yeah his first female therapist first that was i don't know how old she was she was she was younger and uh all of a sudden we got a notification that uh well, we tried emailing her and we were getting frustrated because we weren't getting any response. And then I think Shannon got a call saying she's no longer with the the uh, clinic anymore due to staffing issues. They, well, I think it was because they didn't have they they didn't have enough clientele for the for the uh, children's therapist. So consequently, she got cut from the staff and. So now we have to start from square one again with, with another therapist. And But his biggest problem, though, is, you know, all the therapy that we've given him, he doesn't want to open up. He sits there and just says nothing. And so they can't really do their job, figure out what to do for him if he doesn't want to share. And that's that that's been his thing where if if he wants to get at you, he'll just shut down and not talk. He's just like, whatever. I don't. What are you going to do to me? Whatever. And so that has always been like, well, why am I going to waste my time? Why are we going to waste our time taking off work, getting our schedules all together? If you're not going to put in the effort, if you're not going to put in the work too. And, you know, it was just, it would get super frustrating. We're now at the point where um, we are looking at alternative placements. Um, It's like a home, home for troubled youth type of situation, just because, He's, I think Shannon and I came to the conclusion here that we're just unfortunately not not equipped with the tools we need to try to get him the help he needs. I, and you know, everybody looks at you when you talk about that kind of stuff. Like, yep. like you're, you know, there's something wrong with you. You're the bad parent. And let me tell you, Amanda and I are going to be the first ones to go. Been there, done that. Thank God, I'm not the only one. You know, we have walked through some of those deep waters, you know, that real difficult stuff. And, and you know, we even one of our younger kids, he, he's he's got that dissociator mentality in him. That's, you know, where he just shuts down. And um, fortunately, we, we kind of we spotted that a little bit early and we, we've been working him through a couple therapists actually right now. Um, I don't know if you guys have, have ever messed with it. One of our earliest interviews was with somebody, a gal. Um, whose name I'm forgetting right now. I can see her face. Um, yeah, I'll think of it like in an hour from now, it'll pop into my head. Uh, but but she, she worked uh, with, with an, she did an equine therapy program. 
And it's something that we, you know, we recently found and we have one close by and we've just started. As a matter of fact, we're recording this on Sunday. So in two days, Turtle gets to to actually ride the horse for the first time um, in two days. And he's super excited about that. But for him, the connection with with a horse, it, it was weird to watch him. Like, I'm like, okay, this kid has said more to this horse than he ever did to me like he's he's in a place um where where like that's that's something that he feels comfortable in and that's been super powerful for us so i just for anybody listen who's going through these struggles right like if you have that available around you i would always look into that you know um the one cool thing about this program that we're trying to get him in is they it's a 4-h like in the summer, they have a 4-H program. And so all the kids get to choose a calf or a sheep. Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? And they get to raise them. They get to show them. They get to do all these things. And I thought, well, that's an amazing responsibility right there because you don't have any. Like you barely take care of your dog when you say you're going to. And we bought, we have chickens and they don't take care of the chickens. And so we thought, I like this. I like the idea that you're going to teach them these things that that I can't teach him and see if this actually makes a difference and something clicks in there and go, you know what? Wow, I am having to have responsibility for this other life and nurture it, love it, all of these things. And um, I do believe there is a, um, a, a place like that here. I know a lot of kids with special needs um, ride these horses if i'm not mistaken here in the omaha area well as i understand it the equine therapy that the the beginning of the whole thing is that horses are prey animals right and so they're really good at reading body language and whatnot and um the the long-term goal is really that they uh they begin to figure out that their job is to calm this horse down and they learn how to use their body language and they learn how to to calm the, you know, calm this animal down a little bit when it feels a little bit scared, a little bit upset. Because I mean, quite frankly, if it's an eighteen hundred pound horse, you better hope that sucker's a little bit calm. <laughs> and uh, and so as they're learning this, that they eventually somewhere along that journey, hopefully realize that, oh yeah, like I'm actually controlling my own emotions here. Yeah. And, and there's there's kind of a a feedback loop there that's, that's really valuable. So um, we, we're really hopeful for that, but. But, you know, when you get to that point where you're looking at, at potentially having to find some alternative placement stuff, like that's that's hard stuff. I mean, to be the one who says, oh, yeah, she says a lot. Sorry, guys, but baby woke up, as you can tell. <laughs> but to be the one who, who, who has to stand back and say, hey, there is stuff here that I can't handle. This right. is bigger than me. And it's not that I don't love this kid or I don't want the best for him. It's just that right now, I'm not the best for this kid. That's hard. How have you guys, how have you guys worked through that? Do you have your own therapist? How about that? That's an important question. We don't. Um, I think, I don't know if we've ever really, like I have a lot of friends that say that too. Like, I don't know if you've actually really um, like gone through the whole emotions with, with Gabriel, much less all of this stuff with, with, the other kids and um we i don't internalize it i'm i'm a pretty open book he typically does 
but that's the one thing that we try to do is we try to communicate like whether it's good or bad, you know, tell me what you're thinking. Let's, let's figure this out. And, um, it's, I, we, we cry a lot. Um, I think in the beginning of it, we thought we were awful parents to even think about putting them into a program. But then I realized that, like you said, if, if I, I can't worry about what other people are going to think, they're not in my shoes. They don't live in this house. They don't see what we go through on a daily basis and how what's happening isn't working and it's going to rip us all apart if it continues to keep going down this path. And we love them enough to try this program. I mean, the program is only 12 to 18 months. They're gone through the week, but they get to come home on the weekends. And we're still the family, regardless. We're not shoving them off to let someone else raise them. We're trying to see if they can learn some of basic like life skills that we're not able to teach them, or it's because mom and dad are nagging at us or whatever. But if it's coming from somebody else, then maybe it will you know, click. Um, and if it doesn't, then we realize that, you know, we've done everything we can and no one can tell us that we haven't. I mean, they've been in therapy off and on since they were little. And, um, a lot of people say if they want to change, they'll change. If they don't, they're not going to. And I agree with that to an extent, but I also think that there are things that unfortunately are just in their DNA. It's, it's something that they can't help. And, you know, our middle one is severely ADHD, ODD, um, impulse control issues. I mean, he is a mama's boy, but at the same time, I'm the one that he screams and yells at the most because I'm, I'm the comfort. I'm the, I guess, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's, it hurts me that he uses me as a punching bag, but, um, at the end of the day, that kid understands that when he's doing it wrong, he feels really bad, but it's the impulse that just draws him to continue to do it. And it's too late. And then he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, they understand they don't like it, but they understand that things can't continue to keep going on like this. Um, it's not fair for Gabriel who's seven, who is starting to have impulse issues because of the, you know, what it's done to his brain and he picks up on these things. So I'm at the point now where I'm, I'm ready for it to hurry up and get here because I want, I want peace. I want to feel comfortable in my own home again. And that's how I feel. You I know, know it's different for you. I've I've never said this to anybody else. Um, this podcast I've talked about Doctor Tom a lot, and I always say, and I'm not sharing his info because you, I don't want you people to clog up his schedule so I can't see him. Because Amanda <laughs> and I have known Doctor Tom for about what four years now, yeah. And Doc Tom, he is he is my genius that is that has helped us walk through a lot of these deep waters, and offline somewhere other than in front of you know all the listeners i'd be more than happy to share his information with you guys if you are interested because he does virtual visits and it's been incredibly helpful for us so i I will offer you know his info if you guys are interested but but just not to all the listeners because again you guys can't all clog up his time i need i need an hour here and there and so (laughs) but yeah it's been wonderful for me to have somebody to 
to talk to and to be able to share my feelings because, you know, there's times where I don't like my child Mm -hmm. and that's a pretty horrible feeling as a parent and to admit that to somebody, you know, and especially when you're the one that's the punching bag, you know, I totally, totally understand it. It's, It's a very hard place to be because you love your child, but you don't like who they are. Right. And I think that's something too, that we realize that, you know, I'm, I'm in a pageant in August and, um, my first ever at 46 and my, my platform is about the childhood cancer and what it does and how it impacts, not just the, the, the patient, but the family as a, as a whole. And I don't think that's something that we ever prepared ourselves for is cancer screwed with them just as much as it did Gabriel or just as much as it did with us. And, you know, looking back in some of the things and we saw, you know, some of journaling of our kids and one of them just feeling like, you know, I don't know what I would do if, if we lost him and this is really messing me up and suicidal thoughts. Um, actually while we were in Memphis in December, our oldest, um, oops, our oldest had, um, actually after we just got the news that Gabe's scans came back clear, um, we were told by him on messenger while we were talking on the phone to his, uh, John's mom that he had just taken 20 pills. And I was like, what? Like you're, you're lying. And Long story short, he ended up having to go to the ER, just have them check, make sure everything's okay. And then he had to get checked in for observation at Boys Town. And that's when we decided this is bigger than we thought this was. And we are not equipped to handle this. And um, that's that was really scary for us because we now realized by talking to him and them talking is by thinking that his brother may not make it was making his life even harder. Um, and he had lost a friend who had, who had committed suicide during COVID. And then all of a sudden his bio dad was entering into his head and he had so many different emotions that he wasn't sure what in the hell he was supposed to be doing. And um, I think that's something that we all kind of forget about is, you know, we all go through our own personal hell and they're going through it in the teenage stage, not knowing how to, you know, how do I communicate this to you that I'm feeling this way? You're ticking me off. You're always bugging me about this. You're always nagging me about that homework here. Like, you know, just leave me alone type thing. And it's, that's a huge struggle. I think where a lot of us parents don't realize, you know, these kids come with a lot of baggage, even from being little they start getting older and they start wondering why did my parents not love me or what, what is this and, and how do we make it better? And these are things that I don't know if they'll ever figure out um, or feel better about with, with anything, at least where they are right now. So it's tough. <laughs> yeah. Super tough. It's always hard. You know, I got to, one morning many years ago and um, I had a notification on, on a YouTube video or on my YouTube app on the phone said that I had a new comment or something. I'm like, huh? And, and I went and looked and it was somebody encouraging me not to commit suicide. 
And I'm like, huh? And because I've never been suicidal. It's not, not in my world. And I did a little bit of research, start looking and finally find the comments. And it was on a video of a particular band's vid- video, or I think it was some song. And I, I'm like, oh, I know who listens to that. My son was on my computer and he left a comment on a YouTube video somewhere. And, and I found it and I'm like, oh crap. Like, and that's how we found out that he was, he was dealing with some suicidal ideation. Um, and that was a kid who didn't have childhood trauma like that. He was a kid who came into our life biologically. And, you know, so that, that took some work and we worked through that and we've since dealt with it with more than one kid. Um, the suicidal ideation cutting has been a big thing in our house as well. And so we've had to walk through all that and we had no clue, no clue that it was even starting at that point. You know, and how much more complicated is it when you throw some of these complex trauma issues on top at the beginning? You know, the loss of first family is always one of those traumas that's in there. But but whatever it was that caused the loss of the first family is oftentimes another great big trauma piece as well. And so it's just so difficult. Trauma is such a sticky wicket for us to look at and try and figure out how we're going to deal with this. And, And so, you know, I totally understand what you guys are going through. I want to say that out loud. And anybody listening to this who thinks, oh, I, I don't get it. Like it's, it's not that complicated. All I can say to you is please stop talking and start listening because this stuff is super hard. It's super difficult. And, and I don't know about you guys. Yeah. We had, a, we had some training classes before we began fostering. Um, but we were never given any like superhero skills over here. We, it wasn't a deep level of, of training. We, we were just, we're normal people dealing with extraordinary circumstances and it's really freaking hard. Yeah. yeah. And it's weird. Like people will come up to us and say, Oh my God, you guys are like heroes. You're so, and I go, no, we're not like, you have no idea. We're just like anybody else who's dealing with world, you know, the same problems that you are, you know, but you're giving them a better place. And and I say, sometimes I don't know if I feel like I am, I sometimes feel like, am I giving you more, um, more grief, more heartache than where you came from? I don't know, but I think it's because we're in that teenage stage that it's like, oh, nothing we say or do is ever going to, you know, it's never going to be right. We don't, you know, but it's, it's always interesting how people come up to us and say, you know, you guys are, you're their heroes and you'll never understand what you really mean to them. And I say, I, I, I hope I do one day. I don't know if they really get it now, but I really hope that one day they understand everything that we've done for them. Um, yeah, I feel it's been in, in nothing but love. Yeah, I feel that a lot. The imposter syndrome where you get told how, how amazing you, you know, how, how everything we've done is so amazing. And it's like, if you only knew everything that goes on behind, behind closed doors, it's not, it's not the fairy tale that it looks like from the outside. You're dealing with these kids who've had trauma. And a lot of times we, as the foster parents and the adoptive parents, we get the, the brunt end of the stick, you know, I mean, we, we, they can't lash out at the people who they're really angry at. So they lash out at us. And, you know, sometimes we're not always strong enough to handle that. Well, I hope someday they do realize that because I hope the same thing for our family, because I think most foster and adoptive families walk through some version of this. So. I, yeah. I, I understand how you're feeling and 
I really, really hope someday they all come to understand this. Although we, we won't know till, till the future, how that will all turn out. But, yeah. um, that, that's, that's a hard part of this journey. And it's, and it's, I still don't think we're, we did the wrong thing, you know? No, no. And that's, that's the challenge I think. So John, Shannon, I appreciate you guys coming in here and sharing your yes. story today. You know, cause these topics are not always fun and it's hard to, to tell people what's like the hard, the, the stuff from inside our house that, that they don't get to see that they probably don't want to see. And uh, I just want to thank you guys so much for your time and your openness here because this is this is a this is like a real gut check moment for a lot of people when you're looking at doing this is you know you're gonna you're gonna find some strength in it and we're gonna find value out of it in the long run absolutely i appreciate you guys sharing your story today thank you thank you okay foster care nation thank you for listening to john and shannon's story now take their knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have an account over at Buy Me A Coffee. It's like a virtual tip jar where you can help us fund our mission for as little or as much as you want. It's buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare. The links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. Dot com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Studios. Studios.